This episode of Case Acquaint contains subject matter of a mature and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 18. Before we get to our story, we have a few updates. Natalie White has been found and she is alive. An anonymous tipster provided Natalie's family with information leading to her discovery. Natalie is back with family after almost three months. Due to your support through sharing and contributing to the GoFundMe, the anonymous tipster claimed the money that was raised. So this is an incredible example of how crowdfunding for missing persons or victims of violent crimes can lead to a positive outcome. Money talks. It wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough for that person to come forward with information. Natalie and her family need privacy at this time, so we've removed the original episode and it will no longer be available. I'm sure y'all can understand. A big thank you to everyone who helped. Even if all you did was share her picture on social media, this happy ending is proof that sharing and crowdfunding can and does work. Next, another crowdfunding opportunity, which a listener brought to our attention that we have not announced yet on the podcast. We did share it on our social media, so that's a quick reminder for everybody. We share things on social media and on our website that are not always announced on the podcast. If you want to stay up to date on the cases we've profiled, we would encourage you to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or our website at caseacquaint.com. Now, you're probably familiar with Randy Leach. We talk about his case often because the characteristics of Randy's case have just about everything that could be considered the worst case scenario for a missing person and what his parents have had to go through over the last 30 years, which the 30-year anniversary is coming up soon. So Randy's mom and dad have, after all this time, decided they need to try to raise money to continue their fight to get the case file unsealed or at least have access to some information. So if you'd like to support them, they could really use the help. The GoFundMe is located at gofundme.com forward slash in search of Randy Leach. Please just share the original Randy Leach episode because we have the URL in the show notes of that episode. And if people are curious about Randy, they can listen to that episode before they decide whether or not to donate to the GoFundMe. The more attention the Leeches can get to this case, the better chance they'll have of finding out the truth about what happened to Randy. They deserve it. Another development we need to mention is that a body was found in Northeast Houston last week at an old closed-down sewage treatment facility. It was the body of a man, but they have not released the identity of the person. Now, when this story broke, I was right with y'all who have been messaging us about the possibility of this body being Chase. Well, they released pictures of the tattoos on that body, and according to the information we have, it's likely not Chase. But the fact is, that body belongs to someone's family member or friend, and there are lots of missing people in Houston. Some haven't even been reported missing yet. We will continue to hold out hope that Chase and Champ are found safe, and our thoughts are with the loved ones of this person who was found. That's the end of our announcements. Now, on with the show. Today's story is about the vicious murder 
of Emily Quijano and Gabriel Almiron. Emily Quijano was a young mom living in Orem, Utah with her three-year-old son, Gabriel, and her boyfriend of about a year, Chris Polson. 23-year-old Emily had been attending classes at the Utah College of Massage Therapy, and she was only a few weeks from completing the year-long program. This program had cost her $13,000. That's a lot of money for someone who has a small child to support. Emily worked nights as a server at Carabas, and from what her employer said, she was a reliable employee who could be expected to show up for her scheduled shift. Also, Emily didn't miss classes at school either, because if a student misses more than a few days at the Utah College of Massage Therapy, you have to repeat the program, and Emily was just getting ready to graduate. Emily's family says that they never sensed that there were any problems in Emily's life outside of normal everyday things one would encounter as a busy young mom trying to get into a more lucrative field of work in order to make a better life for herself and her child. Emily had a custody and visitation schedule with her ex-husband, Fabian, and it had been arranged through the court. So when Emily and Gabe did not show up to meet Fabian for a custody exchange on September 12th of 2015, Fabian became the person who reported Emily and Gabe to be missing. Once people started thinking back over the week, nobody could recall seeing either one of them since September 8th. When police went to talk to Chris Polson, Emily's boyfriend, at their place of residence, he told them that on September 8th, he came home and found drug paraphernalia at the apartment. That led to an argument because, according to Paulson, he couldn't tolerate drugs in his home. So that led to Paulson having to kick Emily out. And he said that, from what he understood, Emily was going to move to California. Both Emily and Chris had previous histories of substance use, but as far as other people besides Chris, who knew and loved Emily, they said she had stopped doing all of that when she became pregnant with Gabe, and she threw herself into being a mom when he was born. That's what you'll hear from most of the people who were close to Emily. When they found out she was missing, they were mystified, since this wasn't something she would do. She was the type of person who, if she needed help or advice, she would ask people. But since nobody had heard from her, of course they were confused and worried. So after Emily was reported missing, Emily's family got busy. They put out pictures of Gabe and Emily and information about Emily's car, a little red Prius. They had no idea where Emily could be. Now, the police had to take this seriously because while they wouldn't have to do anything about Emily disappearing, as far as they could tell, Emily had abducted her child, and this was an emergency. So they started looking into the days leading up to the 12th. They found out Emily had missed her September 10th shift at work, and she hadn't attended any of her classes since September 8th. They decided that September 8th must have been the day that something happened to Emily and Gabe. Naturally, police started with the people close to them. They talked to Polson. He said that Emily was kicked out on September 8th. She said she'd be back to get more of her stuff in a few days. So police asked him where he thought she might have gone to stay until she could find someplace else to live, and he told them she'd probably gone over to stay with her best friend, Sarah. So police went over to talk to Sarah. 
she showed them a text message she had received from Emily's phone on September 11th. It simply said that she and Chris had broken up and that she was going out of town for a few days. Sarah told police that this was out of character for Emily to text that because she would have called her to talk to her, not text her if she was breaking up with someone, and especially if she's going to leave town for any reason. Emily's bank records showed no activity since September 8th. Also, Emily's phone, it was clear that she used it frequently until September 8th. After that, there's very little activity that police could honestly attribute to Emily. There was that text that got sent to Sarah. There was also a text between Emily's phone and Emily's mom. And there was also a search done on the 11th. And it was a search for, quote, St. George Shuttle. St. George is a city in the southern Utah desert. It's about a three and a half hour drive from Orem, Utah. And a lot of people use that shuttle when they need to fly out of Salt Lake City. On the 24th of September, Emily's ex-husband wanted to talk to police because he needed to tell them that he and a friend confronted Paulson about Emily's and Gabe's disappearance. Paulson said that even though he had to kick her out for having drugs and paraphernalia, he still gave her $800 to leave with. Now, Paulson had also been talking about this with all sorts of people, and he told somebody else that he'd given Emily $600 when she left. So the cops went to talk to Paulson again about this, and he repeated the same details about why he kicked Emily out, but this time he actually admitted that while he didn't want any drug use happening in his house, he did use marijuana. He also told police that he gave Emily $400. Police had been doing some investigating, of course, and they found out that he had pawned Emily's guitar and amplifier on October 1st. So they asked Polson if all of Emily's belongings were still in the apartment. He said yes. Then they asked him about the pawned items, so he admitted to pawning them. Now they've busted Paulson on at least one or two lies. It's one thing if you don't want to talk to officers, like y'all remember Jason, the nightmare that continues to plague Rachel Galbraith's family. That guy lawyered up immediately. So police didn't get much of a chance to catch him in a bunch of lies, but this Polson, he's a different sort of dirtbag. Cops had gotten access to both Emily and Polson's mobile phone accounts, and from those, they got lots of information. Let me just stop right here for just a sec. When someone goes missing and the cops say they can't get access to someone's phone, don't believe them. I know we have a missing child here, but as this story unfolds, you'll see how crucial it is to get all the cell phone records you can. Like I said, the cops were getting cell phone information such as text, Google accounts, pretty much whatever the phone and the providers can track. Through the phone records, they found the drug dealer that both Emily and Polson had been using. His name is Victor. He told cops that he sold marijuana to Emily and that he had started selling to Polson after Emily started living with Polson. Polson's buying habits were a bit different from Emily's. He liked to buy meth. And Victor said he witnessed Polson using the meth that he'd purchased from him. Also, he said that around the same time Emily went missing, Polson was trying to get Victor to go to Las Vegas to sell a car for him and ride a Greyhound bus back. There's another time that Polson had a party at his house after the disappearance, and at the party, Polson showed Victor a gun and asked him about scratching off the serial number so it couldn't be traced. About the car, Polson had a silver Mustang. He lied to police and told them that Emily usually drove him around in her car. 
but then they found out that Polson had sold the silver Mustang. They made contact with the buyer, who said he had purchased the car on October 13th for $1,200. He said it was listed online for $1,400, which was a low asking price, and Polson had brought the car to him. But on completion of the sale, he asked for a ride home, and that was in fact the apartment Polson and Emily had shared. The buyer was able to identify Polson from a lineup, and he also provided his end of the text messages that he had exchanged with Polson. The cops were able to eventually process the car for evidence where they brought in a cadaver dog who signaled in the trunk area three separate times. They also found evidence of suspicious fluids in the trunk area, so they sent those off to the lab. Then there was a guy named Dylan. It sounds like he was kind of couch surfing at around the same time Emily and Gabe disappeared. But after the disappearance, he moved in with Polson. He told the FBI, when questioned, that a hammer had gone missing from the home at the same time as Emily and Gabe, and that he noticed Emily's computer came up missing too. When he asked Polson about the computer, Polson told him Emily had picked it up. He also told the FBI that after he had expressed hope that Emily and Gabe would someday return, Polson made it clear that Emily and Gabe were not coming back, and Polson would not talk about it after that. Dylan said that Polson's drug use increased. There's a video taken by Polson on his phone in which he was making fun of Emily's little dog, Titan, because Titan followed Dylan around everywhere. In the video, when police got a look at it, they saw a rug doctor carpet cleaning machine. Later, they found documents of a rental of a rug doctor on September 16th. So at this point, cops are suspicious of 28-year-old Christopher Polson. They got access to his bank accounts, they did some searches, and by this point, he had been caught in a lot of lies. It's sometime between October and April of 2017. He must have decided he needed a fresh start in a different area, so he moved to Logan, Utah, which is where he has family. Logan is in northern Utah, and it's about a two-hour drive depending on traffic. On April 20th, 2017, Emily's car was finally located. It was found in the parking lot of some apartments in St. George, Utah. And those apartments were within walking distance of the shuttle service from that September 11th search on Emily's phone. Police had pulled geolocation data from both Emily and Christopher Polson's phones. And it's not just pinging. They were getting every possible bit of information that the phones could offer up. They also had a pretty good idea about what happened to Emily and Gabe, that Emily didn't just take off to California or whatever. They knew from the beginning that story was frankly a bunch of crap. Now that you've heard all this other stuff that happened over several months, and you've heard what people have told the cops, what lies the cops had heard, what other ways they'd been able to identify suspicious behavior with lots of investigation and some mobile phone data, well, that doesn't even scratch the surface of what the cops have been able to do with the cell phone data of this perpetrator and one of their victims. We're going to go back and compare what Polson says to the truth. Because cell phones and the cell phone companies, and especially the geolocation data, these are indisputable facts. Like when you have a dead body. That's a fact, right? This other evidence is just as much of a fact, even better in many ways in terms of establishing guilt. So on September 8th, we have Polson and we have Emily, and they're in their Orem, Utah apartment. 
Nobody hears Emily's or Gabe's voice, nor do they ever see them again. September 9th, Polson goes and visits some dumpsters in an Orem location. His phone is tracking everywhere he goes. Then he goes back to the apartment, and then he goes to some more dumpsters. Then he goes to a Walmart in Springville, Utah, which is not far from Orem, maybe about a 15-minute drive. Because the cops are on him like flies on uh, honey, they know what Polson buys at Walmart. He buys a shovel, some work gloves, an energy drink, and some cigarettes. It's now 10.44 a.m. on September 9th. Either he is well aware that his location data may be somehow reviewed at some point, or his cell phone is out of battery for whatever reason, the phone gets shut off. It's turned back on again three hours later in a rural area of Payson, Utah, and that's not far away. The next day, Polson goes to a Walmart in Linden, Utah, and he purchases heavy neoprene gloves and bedsheets. That night, he goes to a hotel that Victor, the drug dealer, is staying at called the Provo Inn. Victor told cops later that for this visit, Polson was driving Emily's red Prius. They went to Walmart in Orem to get some brownie mix so they could make some marijuana brownies at Polson's apartment. The next day, Polson googled the St. George shuttle service, and both Emily's and Polson's phones travel to St. George at the apartment complex, the parking lot of which Emily's Prius was eventually found. Then the phones go right back to Orem and back to the apartment. The whole time, Polson is texting and exchanging messages with people talking about breaking up with Emily. Police also got a hold of a ticket he had bought under the name Olson for the St. George shuttle, and that was on September 11th. September 12th is when Emily's ex-husband and Gabriel's dad reported them missing. He said he had contacted Polson, who told him the we broke up, I kicked her out story, and that she had left in her car. Police immediately sought and received an emergency phone ping on Emily's phone, which showed that at that point, the last activity was on that very day in Orem. Emily's mother said she had exchanged text messages with her on September 10th, Emily telling her mom that she didn't need help with childcare that night. Because remember, Emily was scheduled to work on the 10th. So they were able to get lots of great information from those phones. After the Prius was found, it was processed by the FBI. Among other things that were found, the car contained some white garbage bags with clothing in them, a car seat, an electronic tablet, and the car keys. These things were sent to the FBI lab. What I'm going to tell you next might surprise you, but it doesn't surprise me having actually lived in Utah for a period of time in my life. That car was sitting in the apartment complex in St. George, Utah for seven months. The windows were partially rolled down. The keys were in the car. There were several things that anybody could steal if they wanted. It was almost as if someone had put that car there, rolled the windows down a little bit, hoping that the car would get stolen, especially since they left the keys in the car. Well, that didn't happen. That car sat there just as it was for seven months. Nothing had been disturbed. It was such a pristine capsule of evidence, in fact, that the plastic garbage bags had only Polson's fingerprints on them, nobody else's. 
Wouldn't that be frustrating to a criminal who is trying to get a car stolen? They take it to an apartment building and assume it'll get stolen, and it sits there for seven months and no one touches it? <laughs> Even with the windows rolled down? I guess that was just his bad luck. The investigation crawled along at what probably seemed like an agonizing pace, but don't forget they're sending stuff out to be tested, that stuff's going to the FBI lab, they're gumshoeing it pretty much all over the state of Utah. They knew something had happened to those two, and you have a young woman who's probably dead, you also have her three-year-old child, and the community, let alone their families, really wanted to know what happened to them. The other thing is, the community and the police had been dealing with a similar type of situation in the not-too-distant past. Most people who watch national news, or even people who are interested in missing persons at least, would recognize the name of another dirtbag, that of Josh Powell. And the absolute torture it was for both the community and the family of Josh's missing wife, Susan. Susan went missing from West Valley City, which is kind of a suburb of Salt Lake City. It's in Salt Lake City and that area. And it might take about an hour to get from one end of the city to another, but it's basically all city in between. When people there watch the news, they all see the same stuff. If it happens in Orem, it's going on the Salt Lake City news. If it happens in West Valley City, it's going on the Salt Lake City news. What's more, people were outraged by the Susan Powell case because there was no justice. Josh Powell got away with murder. They never charged him. And many people said, you know, if you guys don't charge him, other people are going to think they can rid themselves of their wife this way, too. It sets a very dangerous precedent. For that case, people were mystified that he wasn't charged. There was all sorts of evidence against him. They had the kids telling people that daddy put mommy in the trunk and that mommy was dead. The kid even drew a picture of it. Josh Powell canceled Susan's appointments that she had scheduled. He tells the cops that he took the kids camping in December, you know, leaving at midnight like we all do when we go camping in Utah in December. The kids said they all went camping, but mommy didn't come back with them. Also, Josh Powell's family thought something had happened to everybody. They made the police do a welfare check, and the police actually broke in the house. There they found some electric fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet. There was Susan's blood in the house, and there was a life insurance policy of one and a half million dollars on Susan. They had Susan's journal where she talked about being scared of Josh. It was clear to everybody that Josh Powell killed Susan Powell, but they didn't charge him, and people in Utah were outraged. He moved away from Utah, and then he started claiming that Susan had abandoned him and the boys. He lost custody, but was still able to have some supervised visitation. During a visit, Josh Powell blew up his house with himself and those children inside, but not before killing the kids, attacking them with a hatchet, chopping at their heads and necks. Susan Powell had written a note and placed it in a safety deposit box. The note said, If I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Susan's body has never been found, and her loss and the loss of her children is still felt by not only her loved ones, but by the entire community, because it was a travesty. While Polson did appear to be following Josh Powell's lead in some ways, he probably recognized one mistake Powell did make as a killer, and that was leaving a child alive to say what happened to mommy and draw pictures. 
Orem police knew that people were not going to sit around and let them ignore this case. I'm sure they weren't even interested in ignoring the case anyway, but the pressure was definitely on. So after the car was found down in St. George, the police and the FBI continued to investigate Polson, and they kept very close tabs on him. Finally, on August 24th of 2017, almost two years after the disappearance of Emily and Gabe, FBI agents had a little face-to-face -face with Polson, and after reading him his Miranda rights, they started asking him some important questions. They asked him about the phones. They wondered who had his phone and Emily's phone. He said that nobody used their phones and neither one of them had lost their phones. They went back to the day he said Emily was kicked out and they wanted to know what she packed up with her when she left. He told them a suitcase, uh, some other container, and some white garbage bags. They showed Paulson pictures of the Prius and all the stuff that, unfortunately for him, didn't get stolen over those seven months. They also told him about all the geolocation data from both of their phones. At that point, Paulson decided he was finished conversing with the FBI. And within a few days, Polson had absconded from Utah to Hawaii. At that point, you know, I think they must have decided that they had gathered all the evidence they could. Law enforcement and other people had been looking for Emily and Gabe's bodies for a long time. And this was in tandem with the other investigating they were doing. Actually, I should mention that Emily's family also took the initiative and hired a private investigator to look for their bodies as well. But the Orem Police Department and the Utah County Attorneys had to decide whether or not they were going to try to bring their killer to justice. In this day and age, it's commonly thought that you need to have a weapon and a body in order to charge someone with murder. Well, that's not true, and any prosecutor or detective that says that needs to be challenged. Lots of murderers love to say, you can't charge me with murder without a body. Well, obviously it helps. All the evidence you can get helps. But just because there isn't a body, that doesn't mean a person wasn't murdered. Just because we've made some scientific advancements over the decades, that doesn't mean we should dispense with our common sense. And it absolutely doesn't negate all the other evidence they worked so hard to gather. Nobody can ignore how damning the cell phone data is. Just think what would have happened if the investigators in Rachel Galbraith's case would have gotten cell phone geolocation data on people, gotten their text messages, etc. If you have not listened to that episode, I'd encourage you to go check it out and explore the contrast in investigational sophistication between that case and this case. But back to this case. On October 24, 2017, Christopher Richard Paulson was charged with the murder of Emily Quijano Almiron and little three-year-old Gabriel Almiron. He has two counts of aggravated murder and obstructing justice, probably because of all of his lies. They tracked him down simply by monitoring his phone, and he had gotten a job working as a dishwasher at a restaurant in Hawaii. And that is where he was arrested. We believe the detectives with the Orem City Police Department need to be commended here. This is a small police department. They only have about 50 uniformed officers. So what they do is they participate in a task force with other local agencies where they all collaborate and share resources when a serious crime like this occurs. 
They know how to work as a team both amongst themselves and with other agencies. So, consistently doing that enables them to be comfortable working with the FBI so closely when they come in, with accepting the FBI's help and with sharing information with the FBI. Also, this is a transparent investigation. I can tell you this story right now, even though the case has not been completely resolved because of the transparency of these agencies, the offices, and the court. Also, Deputy Utah County Attorneys Sam Peed and Lauren Hunt and their team of prosecutors will be handling this case. There's a special place in our heart here at Case Acquaint for them. That team has more spine than 12 counties worth of attorneys in Illinois or Kansas put together, if you ask me. Sorry to my listeners in Illinois and Kansas, it's not there's anything wrong with y'all out there. It's just that these courageous county attorneys are few and far between. And Utah County right now is very lucky to have these people who are not afraid to do their job. I appreciate that. This case has not yet gone to trial, and the next hearing is scheduled for May. So we're going to absolutely keep y'all updated on it. We want justice for Emily and for Gabe, and that is what we are going to expect. We'd also like to see Emily and Gabe's bodies found. Their families are praying for that, and it would be nice if the killer could realize that his life is pretty much over, and he has nothing left to contribute to society except he does have an opportunity to bring some small measure of peace to the people who truly cared about Emily and Gabriel, if they could mourn them as everyone should be able to mourn their loved ones. They've all been through enough. So until there's an update on this case, this will conclude our story. But we want to know, what do you think about Christopher Polson and charging Christopher Polson with murder when there is no body and there is no weapon? We'd like to know your thoughts. So hit us up on our social media, on our website. You can find the links to all that stuff in the show notes here. And we'll be back to let you all know in an update what the outcome of this case happens to be. We thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.